The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. Unbeknownst to audiences going in, Psycho is almost two movies in one, as the movie experiences a shift about halfway through. This is The Soundtrack Show. of Psycho, TV did not dare show. No one will be admitted except at the beginning. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, rated M, suggested for mature audiences. You had a, a deliberate turn from one story to another. In fact, the first part of the story was a red herring. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is part two of our look at Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, a movie from 1960 by Paramount Pictures, and now Universal Studios, directed by Alfred Hitchcock with a musical score by Bernard Herrmann. Last time, we gave a bit of background on Psycho and on Bernard Herrmann. We talked about how the film was meant to be seen spoiler-free, as Hitchcock and crew had some horrifying secrets up their sleeves that they wanted the audience to experience free of any context the first time they walked into theaters. So, before we begin, I'd like to give a couple of warnings about this episode as I did with part one. The first warning is that this episode will contain spoilers, if you haven't seen Psycho, you may want to hold off on this episode until you've had a chance to experience it. The second warning, since I like to podcast for all ages, is this. Psycho contains mature content. And even though it's meant as a popcorn thriller, it does deal with murder. Consider yourself warned. Okay, okay, we get it. Yes, Psycho is about murder, but here's the thing. Psycho and its music, as we discussed last time, are groundbreaking. According to horror film director John Carpenter, Psycho is the first, quote, modern horror film. It defined a genre, and musically, established a few groundbreaking rules. The most famous, of course, being a musical signature that defines it, the horrifying music for the shower scene. But there are other rules that Bernard Herrmann effectively established with Hitchcock, and the big ones that I want to talk about today are these. 1. Establishing tension. Build a heightened sense of tension, even when showing us the mundane, the absolutely normal, everyday life on screen. To let us know that something's not right. Everything is not okay. The scenery looks normal, but the music is telling you, as Bernard Herrmann said, quote, something terrible is going to happen. It's got to, end quote. Rule number two, sustaining tension through repetition. We'll find in a lot of horror movies, starting with Psycho, a healthy amount of repetition in music in order to sustain that tension. 
Something isn't right. And the more we hear it, the more we anticipate the release of that tension. It's not about if something will happen. But for us, the audience, it's about when. It's funny, this may be my own weird experience, but have you ever had an experience right before you know you have the flu or you're getting ill or something where your mind starts to loop on a fragment of something, a fragment of music or a repeating dream or thought pattern? It gets stuck on an image or a memory. Is it just me? Have you ever had this experience? Well, anyway, when you repeat eerie music often enough, It works on your psyche, (laughs) see what I did there, and it builds tension that has to be released. An excellent case in point is the beginning of Psycho. We're going to examine three different pieces of music and chat about how they're repeated in the first part of the movie, all to drive tension to the center of the film when everything changes. The first is a piece that appears as three different cues in the score. It's called The City, it's called The Car Lot, and it's called The Parlor. But really, it's all just one same piece of music. The first time we hear it is just after the opening credits, you know, that maddening music cue, which we'll get back to in a second. But anyway, right after the opening credits, the camera pans on the city skyline of Phoenix, Arizona, and we hear this. Now, it's important to note, since this is a podcast, there's nothing ominous about the visual on screen. It's actually a beautiful black and white shot. It slowly pushes across the skyline of Arizona on a sunny day into a hotel room window as this music plays. But the shot itself, like I said, is pleasant. Heck, there are even Christmas decorations if you look closely enough. Funny sidebar, the events of Psycho take place in December. Does that make it a Christmas movie? Like Die Hard? Okay, that's a different podcast altogether. Back to the music. Question for you. How does that music make you feel? I don't know about you, but for me, it gives me an immediate sense of foreboding, of suspicion, uneasiness. Something in this movie isn't going to go well. This is all because of the music, plain and simple. All of this feeling comes from the music. If you take away this cue, the opening of this movie is duller than watching paint dry. In a simple establishing shot, we've now got a low-level tension going. Throughout the first half of the movie, roughly, leading up to the murder of Marion Crane, we hear this music in somewhat pedestrian, harmless settings. The used car lot is one. When Marion goes to trade in her car for one with California license plates. No 
mood for trouble. What? There's an old saying, the first customer of the day is always the most trouble. But like I say, I'm in no mood for it, so I'm going to treat you so fair and square that you won't have one human reason to give me... Can I trade my car in and take another? Do anything you've a mind to. Being a woman, you will. That yours? Yes, it's... it's uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I just... Sick of the sight of it. Well, why don't you have a look around here and see if there's something to strike your eyes. Meanwhile, I'll have my mechanic give you the once over. You want some coffee? I was just about... No, to... thank you. I'm in a hurry, and I just want to make a change. One thing people never ought to be when they're buying used cars, and that's in a hurry. But like I said, it's too nice a day to argue. I'll uh, shoot your car in the garage here. The second is in the parlor at the hotel, where Marion takes up a nice offer from Norman Bates to have a sandwich that he made, rather than have to go out again in the rain for dinner. you some trouble no uh, mother my mother uh, what is the phrase she isn't qu quite herself today you shouldn't have bothered i really don't have that much of an appetite oh i'm sorry i wish you could apologize for other people don't worry about it but as long as you've fixed a supper, we may as well eat it. It, uh, it, it might be uh, nicer and warmer in the office. So even when everything's okay in Psycho, everything's not really okay. So now, We've talked about low-level tension. Let's ratchet it up a bit to, say, a medium tension with this cue that we listened to last time. Last time I called this out as a kind of reverse DS array. But let's, for this demonstration, say that this is medium-level tension. We hear it for the first time when we see the interior of Marion's apartment, very early in the movie. We see an envelope that we know from the previous scene contains $40,000 in cash and a suitcase open on her bed. Oh no, she's going to steal the money, isn't she? Wait, really? Oh, she's that unhappy? Oh boy, this isn't good. But yep, yep, oh, there she goes. She stole it. This stolen money eventually leads to her death. And this reverse DS era could arguably be called the stolen money motif, as we hear it again later when Marion excuses herself to the restroom to discreetly pull $700 in cash out of that envelope in order to pay the difference on the new used car. You are in a hurry, aren't you? Somebody chasing you? Of course not. Please. Well, it's the first time the customer ever high-pressured the salesman. 
Oh, figure roughly. Your car plus seven hundred dollars. Seven hundred. Ah, you always got time to argue money, huh? All right. I take it you can prove that car is yours. I mean, uh, out-of-state license and all, uh, you got your pink slip and I your... believe I have the necessary papers. Is there a ladies' room? In the building. Over there. We then hear this cue again, the first time that Marion is alone in the hotel room and begins to unpack, and she hides the money in a folded-up newspaper and leaves it beside the bed. The money, which, by the way, we think is the MacGuffin of this movie, or the main plot that this movie is going to center around, gets a medium-level tension treatment. But check this out. Remember that wild cue we played in part one of the soundtrack show, that cue that begins the movie? that we hear over the opening credits. Wow, this cue is just stunning. I would safely call this high-level tension. And leading up to the murder of Marion Crane, the famous shower sequence that completely transforms the rest of the movie, we hear this high-level tension cue in its entirety four complete times. As in, it's not just hearing a melody briefly played out over a couple of seconds, but rather, it's a whole cue that's at least two minutes long each time we hear it two minutes of solid tension every time it appears. We hear it in the opening credits. We hear it again after Marion skips town after she sees her boss on the streets of Phoenix. We hear it again as she's being tailed by the police. And finally, we hear it as she drives away in her newly acquired car, drives into the night and into a rainstorm, and finally arrives at Bates Motel. Whew, talk about tension. That's a lot. Bernard Herman and Alfred Hitchcock before we even know what this movie is about, keep, they keep stringing us along very skillfully by doing this. Because to be honest, the opening of the movie is otherwise pretty slow-paced. The music is what's providing the tension, the suspense. Without it, we wouldn't be on the edge of our seat worrying about Marion like we do for nearly a solid hour. Of course, as we discussed, the movie changes. After the infamous shower scene, we realize that the MacGuffin isn't the money. It's the murder of Marion Crane, as our other characters come in to try and put a horrible puzzle together. And now for a brief intermission. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We return now to the soundtrack show. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see, perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has as an adjunct an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. I think we can go inside because the place is up for sale, although I don't know who's going to buy it now. In that window on the second floor, the single one in front, that's where the woman was first seen. Let's go inside. The second half of Psycho is like a different movie. We think we know what happened to Marion and who murdered her, but we don't. It's almost impossible to predict as the movie purposefully misleads us again and again. But as the movie changes, the music starts to change as well. It becomes less repetitive and provides more underscore. Sure, we hear some familiar themes from the first half show up again when they need to, such as the familiar frantic opening being repurposed as private investigator Arbogast goes from hotel to hotel in a montage searching for Marion. All I want to do is see Marion before she gets in this too deeply. Did you check in Phoenix? Hospitals? Maybe she had an accident. Or a holdup. No, she was seen leaving town in her own car. By her employer, I might add. Can't believe it. Can you? I'll find it. I'll be seeing you. But other than that, the music doesn't have the same repetition. The tension has been released, and now Psycho has become a whodunit. The only music that is newly introduced as a theme comes to us in the form of a three-note motif that goes like this. I'll play that again. It's most closely tied to Norman Bates. Now, we don't know if Norman is the killer just yet, but we certainly know that he's an accomplice 
as he hides the evidence of the gruesome murder in the swamp. So we get a very, very subtle hint that Norman isn't right, musically, back when Marion and Norman are having sandwiches before the murder, when Marion takes a misstep with Norman and suggests that Norman's mother be put away, we barely hear the introduction of that three-note motif as he responds to her suggestion. Clearly, he didn't take it well. You understand? I don't hate her. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace? You mean an institution? A madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears. And the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. Later, we hear a very clear statement of this three-note motif after the murder when Norman does a final sweep of Cabin One right before he takes the newspaper with the money, unbeknownst to him, and symbolically, well, and literally throws it into the trunk and then into the swamp. It's symbolic because Norman places no importance on the money and by throwing it away and burying it, Hitchcock is telling us that the money is no longer important. So instead, this new menace, this new threat is the real story. The plot is physically thrown away. (laughs) It's amazing what a jump in intervals can do to a melody, by the way. I'm going to play that three-note motif again. Here we go. It's really just a simple foreboding line like this. Kind of like Bernard Herrmann's giving us the audience a dun-dun-dun trope, but putting a unique Herman spin on it by placing the second note up an octave. So rather than going, he does this. Making it a minor seventh leap rather than just a step down. And then making the last interval, for all you musician types, a minor ninth he really creates something memorable. It's interesting because while the movie is actively misleading us, the music is actually telling us something isn't right about Norman Bates. The music is warning us. It's telling us that he's hiding something, sure, but he's hiding more than anyone realizes. It's foreshadowing for the end of the movie, where the real twist is revealed. Besides hearing it in the two spots mentioned above, we also hear it throughout Arbogast's search of the motel. If I wanted to uh, check the cabins, all 12 of them, I'd need a wand, wouldn't I? Listen, if you don't believe me, come on come on with me. You can help me change beds, okay? Oh, oh. <laughs> no thanks. Uh-oh, change your mind? 
You know, I, I think I must have one of those faces you just can't help believing. Is anyone at home? No. Oh, there's somebody sitting up in the window. No, 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 there isn't. Oh, sure, go ahead, take a look. Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. She's, she's an, an invalid, an invalid. Uh, it's, uh, it's practically like living alone. Oh, I see. And then finally, at the very end, after Norman Bates is arrested, and we hear a haunting monologue coming from the voice of Norman's mother, we hear the motif again as it plays over an ending shot of Marion's car being pulled out of the swamp. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Mystery solved. The car and the crimes are no longer hidden. Speaking of hiding, here's an interesting side story just to lighten the mood. This is from the movie business about how one composer, in this case Bernard Herrmann, can influence future films and filmmakers. Here's a clip of editor Paul Hirsch, who worked with Herrmann on three films, including Herrmann's last film, Taxi Driver, before he died. Here's Paul Hirsch talking about Herrmann's music in a film that Paul co-edited in 1976 and 1977. You guessed it, it's Star Wars Episode IV, A New Hope. When I worked on Star Wars, we put in temp music for the entire film. And for the most part, we used classical music and not film music. We used uh, The Rites of Spring by Stravinsky, uh, The New World Symphony by Dvorak, we used The Planets by Holst. We used a variety of, of classical pieces. But there was one uh, moment in the film we couldn't really find the right music for, and I thought of a cue from Psycho. And um, what it was was when the Millennium Falcon had landed on the Death Star, the stormtroopers come aboard and search the ship, and they can't find anybody. And as they're going out, the camera tilts down, and a hatch in the floor opens up, and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and the rest of them pop up from under the floor. And the music that I played at that point was uh, a, th a cue from Psycho, uh, a very famous three-note motif, which I happen to have queued up here. Uh, this, is, this is the three-note motif. And then the music continues from that point, but that opening three-note signature was very famous as the theme from Psycho. And I put it in there, and John Williams, who wrote the score to Star Wars, had been a friend and colleague of Herman's. And when he wrote the score to the film, he wrote a cue to go at that point that used those exact three notes to begin. It was an homage to Herman. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. It's strange to think of some of the most famous scenes in Psycho without music. But would you believe that they almost ended up that way? Originally, Hitchcock didn't want music in this infamous shower scene. But Herman, famous for his strong opinions and for ignoring temp scores and for generally doing things his own way, decided that this was the wrong call and scored it anyway. Of course, when he played it for Hitch with the music, Hitchcock agreed that his original direction for no music was, quote, 
an improper suggestion, my boy, an improper suggestion, end quote. The Blu-ray of Psycho offers a comparison of this infamous shower scene with and without music. Honestly, I feel like it's in bad taste to play a clip of this scene that's just pure shower scream and stab noises. So I'll just point you to the Blu-ray to check it out if you'd like. And I'll just share that the scene, and I think the whole movie, would have totally fallen flat had this particular moment played without music. The music transformed the entire film. That music cue was so effective that Hitch decided that it needed to be reused at the end of the film. When Marion's sister, Lila Crane, goes down into the house's fruit cellar and discovers that, spoiler alert, not only is Norman Bates's mother down there, but that she's a preserved corpse, and it's followed by a screaming entrance of Norman dressed as his mother with a giant knife screaming, I'm Norma Bates! That moment was originally played without music as well. But this time, it was Hitchcock who told Herman to bring back the murder music for this moment. Benny Herman's score for Psycho was brilliant, and in fact so much so that Hitch and I were sitting in the theatre when we were scoring the picture, and we came to the end where um, Tony Perkins comes down the steps into the basement and sees the skeleton mother right at the end of the picture, and that was silent. After we finished that reel, Benny came up to Hitch and said, well, you know, how do you like what you think of it? And uh, he said, well, it's fine, Benny, except surely as Tony comes down those steps into the basement, you should repeat that wonderful theme that you had in the shower sequence of all the fiddles going down like that. What do you think? And Benny said, wonderful idea, Hitch. He was thrilled with the idea and said, Hitch was absolutely right. And so we did that reel with the score. Much, much creepier. This is the third full appearance of this music, as it plays over all three murders. Psycho is a film classic. It changed movies. And its film score, in my humble opinion, is at least half of the reason why. I want to close with a letter from Michael. He writes, Hi, David. I was wondering if you could do an episode on movies that require a soundtrack due to the lack of much dialogue, specifically movies like Conan the Barbarian, which was scored by Basil Polidorus, or the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western scored by Ennio Morricone. Of course, a lot of other films could probably meet this criteria, Braveheart, Gladiator, etc., I'm curious what you think about these scores. Thanks, Mike. P.S. My new favorite podcast. Thanks for writing, Mike. I would love to do movies that are musically driven. And you brought up some amazing film scores there, all of which I'd love to cover at some point. In fact, I've got Conan the Barbarian on vinyl. One thing that I do want to point out is that Psycho actually meets this criteria. Psycho is this way, as are many of Hitchcock's movies. I definitely would love to do Vertigo at some point, for example, as that movie features a lot of sequences that are completely music-driven with no dialogue, as James Stewart drives through the streets of 1958 San Francisco. Thanks to all of you for writing and for your social media posts and reviews. I read every single one and really appreciate your feedback and comments. Drop us a line at thesoundtrackshow@howstuffworks.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW, 
or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins and would love to hear from you. Thank you.